This podcast from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. Faith Bible Church is a Christ-centered Bible teaching ministry dedicated to bringing the good news of the gospel to the whole world. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And now for this week's message from Pastor Alan Battle. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. Hey, everybody, all you Faith Bible members, and welcome all those who are joining us also by the Internet. Uh, Since we can't greet one another with a holy kiss, let's give a shout out to each other on Facebook. And uh, sorry about that. Technical difficulties. So anyway, yeah, just let, let each other know you're there on Facebook or YouTube. And uh, it'll be a good way to keep in touch. Just a second here. All right. So, um, don't have any news as to when we can begin meeting together uh, in the church, um, but I'm praying that it'll be soon. Something to remember this Thursday. May 7th is the National Day of Prayer. On July 20th, 1775, the Continental Congress issued a proclamation recommending a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And in 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed a congressional resolution during the Civil War, which called for April 30th as a day of fasting and prayer. And I believe that we're in just as much of a crisis today as we were during the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. So not only do we face this uncertain economic future, our nation is rapidly moving away from the biblical principles upon which we were founded. So will you commit to fast and pray with me this Thursday? Uh, Let's pray before we begin today's teaching. Father, your word says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Lord, I pray for revival in our land. I pray that you rescue us from our great national sins. Lord, I pray that you would reign in this land once again through your people. Lord, I pray for the people of Faith Bible Church today that you would encourage all of us through your word. Lord, that we would soon be able to begin sharing the fellowship that you've designed us for with one another in our homes and in our church building. Lord, I pray for our neighbors that you would open their eyes to the gospel, Lord, and you would use us to draw them, to love them, to teach them. Father, use this time now to fill us with your truth. Teach us from your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in the name above all names. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we're continuing with our 
series in the wisdom literature of Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes in our series called Ancient Wisdom, Modern Times. And we're looking at the ways that these books can impact our lives today. We've learned so far that wisdom is the right use of knowledge. It helps us to do the right thing in any situation. We also saw that true wisdom can only come out of a right relationship with the one true God. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. That is, the only way we can begin to become wise is to first acknowledge our sin before a holy God. And then he forgives us. And he begins the process of transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus, the Messiah. Last week we saw that by his wisdom, God brings order out of chaos. And he calls his people to do the same. Now, two books that we're going to be studying in this series were written by Solomon, the son of King David. And today I want to focus on his personal history in the sermon that I've called Solomon, Solomon. So why did I use his name twice in the title? Because there are two Solomons, a wise Solomon and a foolish Solomon. They inhabit the same body, though. Solomon began his reign with the advantage of unprecedented God-given wisdom. Yet, in the end, he made foolish choices that had dire consequences for himself and the kingdom. So let's begin by looking at the beginning of Solomon's reign. We go to God's word, 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in his statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now... O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern your great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or life, the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you in all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then 
I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is the inspired, perfect, and holy word of God. So we begin with wise Solomon. Remember, Solomon was the son that God promised to put on David's throne. He was the first in an unbroken line of Davidic rulers that stretched from Solomon until Zedekiah 400 years later. The first thing we see here is that Solomon's relation with God was not based first on obedience to the law, but on his faith in Yahweh first. 1 Kings 3.3, he says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his of David, his father. And love can only flow out of a heart of trust. Solomon trusted God and his intentions for him. Yet in spite of this love, Solomon screwed up sometimes. No amount of faith in this life can make someone perfect. And Solomon was no exception. He was imperfect in his obedience. So the second half of verse 3 says, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, he wasn't sacrificing to idols, but he was sacrificing to Yahweh in the place where idols were also worshipped. Gibeon was a traditional place of worship for the Jews. It was one of the resting places for the tabernacle. So I wonder if Solomon knew that he was being disobedient here. I really don't think so. Not yet. So next, God came to Solomon in a dream, and he offered him a blank check, anything he wanted. And Solomon responded in humility. He said that he was like a little child. He was probably about 20 at this time. And he knows that he needs understanding in order to govern God's people. He needs to be able to discern between good and evil. He felt the weight of his responsibility, and his concern was for God's will and God's people. He needed wisdom. This is the attitude of a humble servant. And this pleased God, who blessed him with unprecedented wisdom, and then he threw in unprecedented riches and fame as a bonus. Look at verse 13. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Riches and honor are things that the world seeks after. Now, ironically, in my studies this week, I did an internet search for Solomon, and I came across several books promising to teach you how to get rich like Solomon. <laughs> so when we get to Ecclesiastes, we're going to see just how Solomon felt about all those riches. And the rest of chapters 3 through 10 in 1 Kings is a catalog of illustration after illustration of the wisdom that God gave to Solomon and begins with the story of the two prostitutes that we're all familiar with. They came to Solomon with a dispute. One accused the other of stealing her baby in the night because she had smothered her own in her sleep by accident. Both claimed that the living child was theirs. So Solomon's ostensible solution was to have the child cut in two with a sword and give each one of them half. But 
when one mother insisted that he give the baby to the other woman to keep it from being killed, Solomon knew who the real mother was. So chapter 3 ends with this. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered in the case of the baby. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So not only within Israel, but the fame of his wisdom spread throughout all that world. So much so that other nations, rulers like the Queen of Sheba came to see for themselves. So Solomon now had his power firmly established and he had the respect of Israel and the surrounding nations. And for the next seven chapters, we're given this extensive list of Solomon's achievements, his prodigious writings, the administration of his government, his military preparedness, his accumulation of wealth, and his building projects, the most important of which was his building of the very first temple in Jerusalem. But I wanted to show you something that we saw when we were in Israel a couple of years ago. It says in 1 Kings 10.26 that Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with and with the king in Jerusalem. So one of those chariot cities was called Megiddo. Um, and it, it has been discovered and excavated. And guess what? Here's an aerial view. And here are the remains of the stables. And here are some troughs and hitching posts. Isn't that cool? It's estimated that Megiddo's stables could have accommodated 450 horses, and the adjacent structures undoubtedly housed dozens of battle chariots, an impressive quantity in terms of that time period. So for 20 years, Solomon was a man blessed by God with great wisdom in not only building, but also in commerce and in diplomacy in scholarship and in writing. And above all that, he had a very personal relationship with Yahweh. At the dedication of the temple, God appeared to him a second time to remind him of his covenant. Look at 1 Kings 9.1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. He had it all, and with God's personal guarantee given here. So what happened? He was at the height of his power and success, but that's when he should have been especially on his guard. I believe that his great success caused his heart to become proud and complacent and eventually 
outright rebellious. So after this detailed catalog of the accomplishments of wise Solomon in 1 Kings 3 through 10, foolish Solomon shows up. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign wives, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart from their gods after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For Solomon, when he was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Solomon started well, but the seeds of his downfall showed up early. One of the first things that he did was to make a political alliance with Egypt by marrying one of their princesses. And I'm sure that was just a political expediency. But it was in direct disobedience to what God warned against in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, which was quoted in the verse in the passage we just read. Don't marry them because they will turn your heart from God. And that's exactly what happened. Eventually, his politically expedient marriages with foreign women turned into true love commitments with some of them. Verse 2 says that he clung to them in love. This speaks of a strong emotional attachment. It's the kind of attachment that believers are supposed to have with God. And it's the same word used in Deuteronomy 10.20, where it says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast, that is, cling to him, and by his name you shall swear. This attachment to his wives caused him to neglect his relationship with God and go after their gods instead. At first, he just tolerated their false worship, but then he joined them in it. His personal, emotional relationships drove him to change his theological convictions. Unless you know something about these other religions, this passage here doesn't convey the gravity of his rebellion. Sexual immorality was integral to the worship of Ashtoreth. It involved girls sacrificing their virginity to the god, the goddess, and the worshippers' participation with temple prostitutes. And Milcom is also known as Molech. He required people to literally burn their babies on his altar in order to achieve prosperity. So how does this apply to modern times? The same idols are still around. They just have different names. Names like the sexual revolution and a woman's right to choose. And like Solomon, we're bringing their worship into the church. Many young people in the church today are cohabitating without the benefit of marriage. 
but they can't live with the contradiction between their actions and their beliefs. So instead of changing their behavior, they change their beliefs. Their relationships shape their theology. And I see this happening in the area of homosexuality in the church as well. Not only do those, um, those who practice homosexuality change their theology, but their parents and their friends do too. There's a growing movement among evangelicals to accept gay relationships and gay marriage. And many of the leaders are parents or friends of gay loved ones whom they do not want to offend. So they look for ways to reinterpret the Bible to fit their emotional desires. But this will be the downfall of many churches. Hosea said that they make idols for their own destruction. Liberal denominations that have long since rejected biblical marriage are in membership freefall. And evangelical churches that go down the same road are going to suffer the same consequences. So Solomon's choices became the downfall of the nation of Israel. Because of Solomon's sin, God wrenched the kingdom from the Davidic line, splitting it into two kingdoms. Eventually, both the northern and the southern kingdoms were invaded and deported from the land that they should have inhabited in peace forever. But that promise remains valid, and it will be fulfilled when another son of David arrives to claim his throne. This is Jesus, our Lord who has fulfilled the covenant and will forever be our wise king. So what can Solomon's story teach us today? First, we have the same privilege to receive wisdom as Solomon did. There can only be one wisest man, but any of us can have as much wisdom as we want. How can I say that? Well, look at James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But there are conditions here for getting wisdom from God. First, you must admit you need it. You must know that you lack it. The arrogant fool doesn't see his own foolishness, but those who fear the Lord know that they have a long way to go. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So we must be open to correction. That means repentance. If your God never disagrees with you, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're worshiping a God of your own making. And what is the second condition? You have to ask for it. You have to ask for wisdom. And when you do, God will give it generously. He's not stingy about his good gifts. So then by what means does God impart this wisdom? How do we get it? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. Apostle Paul writes, And we impart this in words not by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You can go to all the high-powered, high-priced seminars you want, but no man or woman can teach you like God himself. God. 
if the enormous weight of this does not strike you, you're not awake. God himself is in us and with us and is our teacher. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, indwells everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. So does that mean that we can be Lone Ranger Christians? Just me and God? Wrong answer. The Spirit of God uses both his word and his church in the process of imparting wisdom. Look at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. First, he uses his word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is the only source that we have for knowing the mind of Christ. He is the word of God. Any so-called wisdom that contradicts the scripture is worldly wisdom. I found this quote from Cornelius Van Til, a great reformed theologian of the last century. He said, God is the original while man is the derivative. Man's thoughts must therefore be patterned after God's thoughts. Man must, as we often express it, think God's thoughts after him. I love that. We think God's thoughts after him. He is the truth, and we reflect his truth. So our personal time in the word is very important, but it is not complete. Otherwise, God would have not established his church. Look at that verse again. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. One another. Teaching and admonishing one another means it only works if every one of us is filled with the word and is sharing it with each other. I came across another quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book on Christian community. He said that, The believer needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs him. This, he said, is because at times the word of Christ in us is weak, but in our brother it is sure. This is why God commands us to gather together on a regular basis. You cannot obey the command of Colossians 3.16 unless you are in regular fellowship with other believers with whom you are intimately connected. And my second takeaway from the life of Solomon is that any believer, like Solomon, can be both wise and foolish. People who are saved can do stupid things. They can do horrendously evil things. This is one of the main reasons I wanted to share Solomon's story with you today. We have all sinned against the Lord in many ways since we were saved. But that is not the end of our story. This is the whole purpose of the gospel. Christ died to save sinners. The gospel saves us and keeps us saved. We need to be reminded of that every day. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's not over till it's over. And when it is over, like Job we shall come forth as gold. 
Nehemiah scolded the inhabitants of Jerusalem in his day for marrying foreign wives like Solomon did. He used Solomon as an example. Nehemiah 13.26 says, he said, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. He was beloved by God, and he messed up. But as we will see when we get into Ecclesiastes, he eventually returned to the truth. It's never too late to repent. So we're going to end with the words of the Apostle John today to his fellow Christians. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's pray. Father God, thank you that you offer your salvation freely. Lord, that all we have to do is ask. And then all we have to do is ask for your wisdom. And you give that to us as well. Lord, we praise you and thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in this church. We give you that praise in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the preaching of God's Word from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you and that the Word of God will fill your hearts and minds as you walk through this world. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would like to make a small donation to help defray the cost of this podcast, just click on the green Support Us button at the top of the webpage. Thank you.